So are you ready? Because we're going to try to, in a half an hour, go through the Old Testament. So if you pull, hopefully you got one of these. Now the thing we did this weekend is we made it perforated so you can actually tear this off. And we're going to be following that. You don't have to tear it off right now if you want to. It'll sound really cool if everybody does at the same time. But uh, it really, it's, it, this is something we hope that you'll it'll be helpful to you. Notice there's three different uh, areas. There's the top area, which is historical. Then we have the middle area, which is experiential. And then the lower area, which is the prophecy or prophetic. And... So what I want to do is just try to walk, walk you through the Old Testament in 30 minutes. And you'll walk out of here, hopefully, and understand. Because, see, here's what we do. We often pick this book up, and we think, okay, I start at the first page, and I read it through the end. And that's one way to handle it. But the thing you may not understand is the books aren't, it's not written that way. In fact, instead of thinking of the Bible as a book, think, it, think of it as a binder, because it has 66 books in it. It's not just one book. It's a binder with 66 books. And so I want to show you kind of how that plays out. It's a collection of 66 books. There's 39 in the Old Testament. There's 27 in the New Testament. It's written by 40 authors, different authors, and over a period of 1,500 years, but with one unifying message. And I believe that the message is that God wants to be with His people. And even though His people sometimes throw fits and walk away, God finds a way, and ultimately the way is He finds Jesus, and Jesus comes to earth so that we could be with God forever. That's essentially what the message of the Bible is. It begins with God in the garden with Adam, and it ends with us in a city with a garden uh, uh, on this earth with God dwelling with us. And so that's really the message of the whole Bible. Now, as I said, the Bible has... Uh, different kinds of literature. And, and, and we have the historical books, which we're going to look at, and then it has the experiential books, and then it has the books of prophecy or the prophetic books. Uh, what we want to do, though, is we want to walk through the historical books. That's really what we're going to focus on uh, this morning. So the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. And Pentateuch just simply means five of something, five books. Okay, or uh, many Jewish people call it the Torah, uh, the law, okay, the teaching. Okay, and Torah just means teaching. The first five books are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And many times uh, they'll talk about the law, and they're referring to these five books: the Torah, or the law, or the Pentateuch. Now, in the book of Genesis, that's the first uh, book on the chart. There, there's 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. Uh, chapters 1 through 11 have four great events. The creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. You want to say that with me one more time? The creation, it's creation, the fall, the flood, and the tower. One more time. Creation, fall, flood, and tower. That, that's what takes place in 11 chapters. The creation of the universe, the fall of mankind, a flood that destroys man, the hu- humanity, And ultimately, the last one is a tower that they try to build to heaven. That's 11 chapters. That's a lot of stuff. Now, if you go to chapters 12 through 50, it's about four people. Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, his son Joseph. All right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Can you say that with me? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That's chapters 12 through 50. Now... 
if you're just looking at it like that, 11 chapters on the creation of the world, the fall of mankind, the flood, the tower, and then 12 through 50, it's about four people. What do you think the emphasis is? It isn't about creationism and all the other stuff that we always get hung up on. It's about God being with people. It's about His nation, His people. And that's what you hear about. So chapter 12 is an absolutely pivotal chapter in the whole book of the, in the whole Bible, essential in the book of Genesis. I just want to read you a couple of verses from Genesis 12. This is uh, God talking to Abram, whose name will be changed to Abraham. All right? And this is what it says. The Lord had, had said to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. This is the, what scholars have called the Abrahamic covenant. And a covenant is nothing more than an agreement that God makes with someone. In this case, he makes it with Abraham. And he says, Abraham, you're going to be more numerous than the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. You're going to have multitudes of descendants. You are going to be a blessing to other people and other people, they're going to be... And all the nations of the world will be blessed by you. Okay? So this is a really important covenant that God makes. So in the book of Genesis, we see four events. We see four people. We come to the end of the book of Genesis, and we're looking at uh, Joseph. Joseph was a son, and ultimately, he was, uh, at this point, you know, he was sold into slavery. And when we end the book of of, uh, Genesis, the people of Israel, and it's just a family of about 70, they're in Egypt. And Joseph is like second in command in Egypt. And there are guests there. And everything's going well. I mean, it's a happy ending. You know, okay, happy ending. Genesis, great. Then you come to Exodus. Now, you don't know this, and it doesn't tell you in the text. But in the text, in history, 400 years has passed from Genesis chapter 50 and Exodus chapter 1. 400 years has passed. And Israel's no longer guests in Egypt. They're slaves. And, 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 and Moses is raised in Pharaoh's house. Don't have time to go in and tell it. And, and Moses has to actually flee for his life because he killed a man. And, and the Pharaoh is after him. So he ends up being out in the wilderness. He's wandering in the wilderness, tending sheep for 40 years. And one day he sees a bush. And it's on fire, but it's not being burned up. I don't know how that works, but that's the way they described it. Burning bush. And out of the burning bush, God says to Moses, Moses, you're going to be my man. You're going to be my leader. I want you to go into Egypt. I want you to talk to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And Moses says, you got the wrong person. I can't do it. He says, no, you need to go, and Aaron will go with you. And so Moses goes in, and then you hear about the plagues. There were ten plagues. And, and the plagues are significant. What God is doing in the plagues is He's showing... Remember, they, there's 400 years where they have lived only hearing about the Egyptian gods. They heard about the god of the Nile. They heard about the god of fertility. They, they've heard about all these other gods. So they begin to think those are the gods. So what were the plagues? The plagues were God coming in and showing His people who He is going to free from the Egyptian bondage. This is the god 
that you worship. This is who I am. And he begins to defeat the God of the, of the, of the uh, Nile, the God of fertility. And all these gods kind of go down one by one until it comes to the death of the firstborn. Moses leads the people out of Egypt, parts the Red Sea. They walk on dry ground. And they land at the end of the book. You see them. They're at, uh, they're, they're at Mount Sinai, a very sacred and a very important place. They spend one year at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, uh, and that's chapters 19, Exodus 19 through Numbers 10. So all through that period of time, that one-year period of time, that's all recorded through Exodus 19 through Numbers uh, 10. 58 chapters is all about that time around Mount Sinai. And what God does there is he makes a covenant with Moses and with the people. You can read about that in, uh, in Exodus chapter 19, where God basically says, I brought you out of Egypt. Now, here's the covenant that I'm going to make with you. You will be my people. This is how you relate to me. This is how you relate to one another. And we get the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, where God says, uh, you'll have no other gods. This is how you'll approach me. And, and here's how you build the tabernacle. And here's how the priests will uh, dress. And here's how you bring sacrifices. And here's how you treat one another. Don't kill each other. Don't covet each other's things. Don't steal from each other. So it's a covenant. It's an agreement that they make because they're living together in the wilderness now. So God gives them the law and uh, he says, you'll be my people. Now, the next book is Numbers. You say, well, why isn't it? Why isn't it Leviticus? Why isn't Leviticus up there? Because Leviticus doesn't really further the progress of history for the nation of Israel. As I said, they're around Mount Sinai. What is Leviticus about? Leviticus basically is, uh, contains information. It's given to the Israelites as they're camped at Sinai. And it's, the, it's how they're to manage the tabernacle. What festivals are they supposed to uh, uh, observe? What were the priestly duties? What about the sacrificial system? That's what Leviticus Describes. So when you read through Leviticus, you read the, the priests will have this garment, the sacrifices will be these, the special days, and you go, this is pretty tedious. Well, he's giving instruction for how the people are to relate to God. That's what he's doing there in Leviticus. So we jump down to Numbers. Numbers is an interesting book because at Mount Sinai, before they leave Mount Sinai, uh, they number the people, they count the people. And uh, they uh, uh, begin to wander. And he, Now here's the point. God said, Moses, you're going to lead my people out of Egypt and you're going to lead them to the promised land. What promised land? The one that God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. You're going to have land. Well, Abraham never saw that land. He never dwelt in that land. And so Moses is ready to bring them into the land. Now, here's what happened. Brings them to the point where they go towards the land and they, they, they get spies together. One spy for every tribe, for every, for every nation. There were 12 tribes so there was 12, tri- uh, 12 spies. The spies went into the land. They spied out the land, and they came back. And basically what happened was they gave a, this report. Tw- ten of the spies said, well, they all said, the land is great. It's incredible. It's, it's flowing with milk and honey. It's just it's unbelievable. But ten of them said, you know, well, we can't do it. There's these giants. We can't beat them. The, we, can't, we can't do it. And there were two spies, Joshua and Caleb. And they basically said, you know what? It's not really about, it's not our battle. God is going to win. If God has given us the land, he'll win the battle. And so they did a majority vote. And the majority won. (laughs) And so what happened was, because of that, 
God said, okay, because you have failed to follow me and take the land that I'm giving you, you, this generation will never enter the land. So they wandered in the wilderness. You're talking about a week or two trip to go from Egypt to the promised land, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they failed to obey and trust God. That generation never walked into the land. In fact, there were only two people that entered into the land. When we get to the book of Joshua, you know who they were? Joshua and Caleb, the two spies that brought the good report. That's basically the, the message of what took place in Numbers. The book ends, and they're on the edge, ready to go into the promised land. Now Moses was told, and I don't have time to go into this, that he was not going to be able to enter the land because he sinned. He was able to look at it, but he was not able to go into the land. We come to the book of Deuteronomy. Again, that's not on the, the level. It's down below. Why is it down below? Because Deuteronomy is basically this. It's Moses speaking to the people as they're ready to enter into the land, and he basically gives three sermons to them. And he basically, the gist of the sermons are this. God has always been faithful to you. God has always kept his promises, but you have failed him. Your parents, your, the generation before you has failed him. Don't do the same thing. Don't fail like they did. Go in and take the land. That's essentially what he says. It's basically saying, this is your chance, don't blow it. That's the, the message of Deuteronomy. God has given you the land, go in and take it. We come to the book of Joshua. Joshua is an interesting book. <clears throat> Joshua has been the protege of Moses. He's been, remember, he was one of the spies 40 years ago. So he's 40 years wandering in the wilderness. He's been working with very closely with Moses. And so Joshua basically... Uh, they go into the land, they take out Jericho, this huge city. Basically, God gives them Jericho. And Joshua makes probably his biggest mistake. He says, okay, now we've got to take Ai, very small city. He says, we don't send, need to send everybody there, just go ahead and go. They go to Ai, and they just get destroyed. And Joshua's upset. He goes, God, what's going on? And, and God said, you, didn't, you, you have sin in the camp. What happened there was a man named Achan when they went into Jericho, took some of the spoils. And God said, you are not to take any of the spoils. And he hid them under his, his tent. And so basically, God said, you have failed because you have sinned in the camp. Now, if Joshua had just gone to God and said, okay, we're going to go against Ai, any instructions? God would have said, no, get, get rid of the sin in the camp before you do this. Joshua learned that lesson, never made it again. He never made that mistake again. So they, they take care of Achan. He is put to death. They go in and they take the land. And basically how they do it is they go and they take the center section of the land, they conquer the southern section, they conquer the northern section, and then they distribute the land. So every tribe got a portion of the land. Now it's interesting because you come to Caleb. Remember Caleb? He was one of the good spies. He comes to Joshua when they're giving out the land. He's like 80 now, okay? Now I think they aged better back then, but I don't, I don't know. But he's 80 years old, and he's gonna, I, he says, Joshua... I want the land over here, the mountain. And, and, and he says, you, I told you that was the land I wanted. I want that land. Now, what was, what was so special about the land? That was the land where the giants dwelt. Remember why they wouldn't go into the land? Because they were afraid of the giants. Caleb says, I've been waiting for 40 years for those giants. They're going down. <laughs> you know, 80 years old. And, and that's a great story. And so, you know, Joshua says, have at it, you know. And, and so there's the book of Joshua. 
It's a book of victory. It's a positive book. Now Israel is dwelling in the land, um, and that's the fulfillment uh, of the Abrahamic promise that you would have land. We come to the book of Judges, and it's not a very good book. It's, if, if Joshua's is victory, Judges is defeat. And Judges is a, a book of defeat. It's a, a dismal, dark time in the life of Israel. And the phrase that it's used, and it's uh, Judges 2, 11, and 12, it basically says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Very similar to our, our, our pluralistic society today. Uh, we just determine for ourselves what is right in our own eyes. We have no outside ultimate authority we make our own decisions. And you can see what that does. It, it just reaps for just terrible things. There were 13 judges. And don't think of judges as, as people that sat behind a bench and, and hit a gavel down and said order in the court. We're talking about regional warlords. We're talking about rulers. And, and they, would, they would pop up. And judges is very significant because it has a couple of things. Uh, number one, it has a cycle. And the cycle, the spiritual cycle is this. That the people sin, they, be, they become oppressed by outside people, and they repent of their sin. They cry out to God for deliverance. God raises up a judge. The judge militarily sets them free, and then they go and do it all again. <laughs> and so that's what the judges are, basically. And you'll see that pattern over and over again. It's the cycle of the judges. And it's a downward because as you get to the end of the book of Judges, it is really dark. It is a really dark book. So that's the book of uh, Judges. We come to Ruth. Ruth is a supplementary book in a sense. It takes place during the days of Judges. And it's about uh, basically Ruth and Naomi and uh, Mordecai. And basically it's a story about uh, of uh, kinsman redeemer, or excuse me, Boaz. Uh, Ruth, uh, Naomi, and Boaz. Now, Boaz becomes uh, a close relative, and, and Naomi has lost her, her, her husband, lost her sons, and, and, Bo, and uh, Boaz comes, and he becomes uh, a close relative to, to buy it all back. And it points a picture to an ultimate kinsman redeemer, an ultimate redeemer who would buy it back, who would give us his wealth. And, and as he married Ruth and she gained his wealth, when we come to Christ, we gain his wealth. And that's really the message of the book of Ruth. Come to 1 Samuel. Samuel was a priest. His mother was uh, barren and prayed to God that she would give her a son, and he did. And uh, he pro- she promised that she would give the son to God and literally gave the baby to the priest, and the priest raised Samuel. Samuel became a man of God. He became uh, not only a priest but a judge. He was the, the one who anointed Israel's first king. Remember, they're in the land. And in, in the book of Judges, one of the things you don't see is you don't see strong leadership. Now, you had Moses, and then you had Joshua, right? And then you have no one. And so that's Judges. You have no strong, moral, good leadership. So now you come, and you have, the people say, we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. We want a king. And God says, no, you don't. He says, yes, we do. Well, you'll have to pay taxes, and you're not going to like him, and you're going to... No, we want a king. He says, all right, I'll give you a king. So Samuel comes and anoints Saul to be the first king. Saul becomes the first king of the nation of Israel. He begins with great promise, but he basically spends most of his time chasing and trying to kill David. Now, Saul's son, Jonathan, and David are very close. They're just really close friends. And 
you know, Jonathan was in line for the throne, but ultimately he knew that God had his, his hand on David. And uh, they became very good friends. Saul, you know, there were times where, where Saul, David, had, was, could, could have taken Saul's life easily, but he didn't because he said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. Well, David uh, rose to fame, and you read, read about that in 1 Samuel, where, remember, he's a young boy, and he goes out in the battlefield, and he battles against Goliath and defeats Goliath and all of that. Well, at the end of the book of uh, Samuel, we see David is beginning to rise as uh, a threat. And he's not really a threat, but he rises to power. And in 2 Samuel, we see David ruling in Judah and then over the whole kingdom. And uh, God makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. And I don't have time to go there, but basically what God says to David is this. David, there is always going to be someone from your, from your uh, family that will be sitting on the throne. It's the Davidic covenant. And ultimately, we know that you, when you, you go through the genealogies and that, that ultimately the, the point that is being made there is there is a coming king, one even greater than David, one that's going to be the king of kings and lord of lords. We know him to be Jesus Christ. And, and, and so that's a very important covenant because it basically says that there's one day a coming king. Now, David starts out really well. He's a man after God's own heart, but he sins. He, he has a, 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 a sinful relationship with a woman named Bathsheba. Uh, he has Uriah, her husband, basically killed on the battlefield, and he tries to hide his sin. But uh, he could hide it from the people, but he couldn't hide it from God. And God was aware of it. He sent Nathan a prophet. Nathan told him a parable. And David was outraged by the parable. And it talked about a man who took somebody else's lamb when he had a whole bunch. And, and the picture was, David, you took one man's lamb, but you could have had, you know, whatever you wanted. You know, you had the pick of the litter. And David was outraged and he says, that man ought to die. And, and Nathan said, thou art the man. You're the man, David. And so David confessed his sin. By the way, is on these chair Bibles, the passage here is Psalm 51. And let me read you a portion of that. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Do you know when he wrote that? He wrote that when he confessed his sin to God for the murder of Uriah, for his, his um, affair with Bathsheba, for trying to hide his sin. So you can read about that in Psalm 51. David writes his prayer of confession. He also writes uh, in Psalm uh, 32. It's and so he shows he has a repentant heart. David was one of the greatest kings Israel ever had, and he was a man after God's own heart. That's 2 Samuel. 1 Kings. 1 Kings. Now the kingdom is moved from David to, to his son Solomon, and Solomon is uh, quite the ruler. Solomon ruled over Israel, probably ruled most uh, the, the, the largest land capacity of the kingdom. The, the kingdom was the furthest extended under his rule. He had the most wealth, the most prosperity, the most peace. The economy was good. He was at living in peace. Uh, he did a lot of building. He built the temple. David wanted to give God, build the God the temple, but God said, no, you're not the man. Your son will build the temple. But David designed it, basically, and Solomon built it. And so Solomon builds the temple, this, this incredible temple. 
forgot. And um, so Solomon is uh, very uh, wise. Uh, he's all people from all over the world flock to hear his wisdom. Um, he, uh, but his weakness was this. He married many, many women. You say, well, what, what was he? Was he a sex addict? Was he just, just... No, 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 no. What was going on here was, in, in those days, you, what you would do is, for, to, to have peace with the nations around you, you would marry the, the, the family of the king, a daughter, daughter of the king, uh, so that the king would never attack you because his daughter was in this kingdom. So... He did this to make alliances with many kings. Now, here's the problem with that. With these women that he married for these alliances, they brought their gods. They brought the worship of their gods. And Solomon, it says in Scripture, because of his many wives, his heart was taken, drawn away from God because of these other women and these other, these other gods. And so... Uh, Solomon basically was a man who was very wise... And he prayed that first prayer, God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. And God did. God made him very wise. But he made some poor choices. And uh, his heart uh, got pulled away from God. Solomon, David wrote a number of the Psalms. So did Solomon. Solomon also wrote uh, a number of the Proverbs. So that's why you see underneath in the experiential books, you'll see Psalms and Proverbs. Um, So under Solomon, you have a united kingdom. And uh, you come to the end of the book of uh, 1 Kings and you see that the kingdom under Solomon, because after his death, it is divided between the north and the south. The northern kingdom is called Israel. And there's ten tribes in the north. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And there's two tribes in the south. And um, that's going to be uh, divided from from then on. In 2 Kings, really what you're going to have is you're going to have an account of the northern kingdoms and the southern kings. You know, and basically it just jumps back and forth. This person was king. Well, where were they? King in the north or king in the south? And you'll hear this phrase over and over, and they did not do what was right in God's eyes. They did not do what was right. There were virtually no good kings. There was one queen. But they weren't very good. And... um, there were 41 kings and one queen. And most were pretty awful. Now, as you read through 2 Kings, the northern kingdom was taken into captivity in 70, 722 by the, uh, the, the uh, uh, world power of Assyria. The, it lasted 208 years. So 208 years the northern kingdom lasted and was taken into by the kingdom of Assyria. The southern kingdom fell to Babylon in, in 586. It lasted 344 years, and it was taken into captivity by the Babylonian Empire because the Assyrian Empire had been uh, gone and uh, it, uh, it had uh, died. And for the most part, it was defeated by Babylon. You come to First and Second Chronicles and notice those books are down below. Now, why are they down below? Because they're supplemental books. They don't further, they supplement. And what do they do? Well, the books of Chronicles, they center around the reigns of David and Solomon. So they give you kind of, and you'll read, you know, you'll read through Chronicles and you'll go, wait, I, didn't I read this somewhere before? Yeah, probably. You probably read it in Kings. So, you know, 
Because if you read 1 Chronicles, you're going to read about the reign of David. If you read 2 Chronicles, uh, you're going to read about the reign of Solomon and the rest of the Davidic dynasty in in 2 Chronicles. So they supplement. That's why we have them down below. Are you starting to see now how the books are fitting together and how even the historical books, not every book furthers the history, they sometimes supplement now, flip to your, your chart over, because on the back there's what I call the king's chart. And notice that we have, uh, if you look on this side, over to this side over here, you have Saul, and uh, he was the first king, then David, and then Solomon. That was the united kingdom. And then notice it branches off to a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom was Israel, uh, and you read about it in 2 Kings, 208 years taken into captivity by the kingdom of Assyria. The kingdom split at 930 B.C. Uh, The southern kingdom was Judah. It lasted 344 years, and in 586 it was taken to Babylon. Okay, there's your quick history lesson. Now, B.E. on your chart stands for the Babylonian exile, and all that, it's just a fancy phrase to say, this is where, because here, here's what happened. When the people were taken by Babylon and by the Assyrian kingdom, they were taken into captivity. But Babylon, there were three groups that were taken into captivity. One of those groups was Daniel, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So they're taken to Babylon. Not every last person was taken there. Many people were taken there. Most people were taken there. Some people were brought back to, patri- to populate the land. They became, and they intermarried with the people, and some Jews that were still back in the land, they became Samaritans. We could talk more about that in a minute. But the point is, the Babylonian exile talks about what was life like as a Jewish person living in Babylon. Okay? This is about life in Babylon. It lasted 70 years they spent in the Babylonian captivity. One year for every Sabbath rest they didn't give the land. Every seven years they were supposed to give the land a Sabbath rest. Uh, They were leave it fallow, let it rest, and they violated it. So for every time they violated the Sabbath rest, they spent a year in captivity, 70 years. So that tells you how many years they violated the Sabbath rest, which, by the way, you found in, in Exodus... It talks about the Sabbath rest of the land. So, the Babylonian exile, um, Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, gives us a glimpse because he was one of the young men that was taken into the Babylonian, you know, during, when the southern kingdom fell. Daniel was one of the king, one of the, one of the uh, young men that were taken into the Babylonian empire. And so, if you want to know what life was like in Babylon during the Babylonian exile, read the book of Daniel because it gives us a little glimpse of that. It tells us a little bit about that. Okay, we come to the book of Ezra. Ezra is 70 years later because the Babylonian exile is over and now there's a new world power. And we talked a little bit about this last week. Cyrus, and he brings a decree and he says you can repatriate, you can emigrate back into the land. And Zerubbabel you know, leads a group, and then Ezra leads a group, and basically they rebuild the temple. Uh, and the temple's completed in 515 B.C. And, and through this, this going back and rebuilding, they have conflict with people who are already in the land. The Samaritans, who had, were kind of Jewish, but they had married, uh, uh, intermarried, and basically they wanted to help, and they said, no, you're not true Jews, so you're not going to help. And so there was conflict there. The second emigration was led by Ezra. 
there was a problem of intermarriage. You can read about that in the book of Ezra. Nehemiah. Nehemiah was in uh, Babylon, and he was a cupbearer for the king, and he basically heard a report about how badly things were going in Jerusalem. The walls were broken down, and the city was... And he he was very discouraged by that, so he went into the king as a cupbearer, and he asked to be released of his duty so that he could go and lead a party to rebuild the walls and get permission from the king. The king grants him permission. He goes in. They rebuild the walls. They basically... uh, rebuild the spirit of the people he brings the word of god out they begin to honor god's word they begin to sacrifice again uh and so that's how uh the book of nehemiah ends uh and then we have 400 years of silence or 400 years of silence uh before we hear anything in the new testament and what do we hear we hear about a coming baby john and then jesus the, the ultimate messiah We come to the book of Esther. I talked about that last week, and basically that just gives us an idea of what was life in the capital of the Persia. Uh, Esther becomes queen probably 40 or 50 years after people have gone back into the land. Some Jews remain. They didn't all go back into the land. What was life like? Well, Esther tells you a little bit about that. Now, what I'm saying to you is this. If you read those 11 books... You have read through the history of the whole Old Testament. You know the storyline. You'll pick up most of the main characters. But wait, you said there were 39 books in the Old Testament. I did. But see, my point is, those 11 books, I'm counting 11 because 12 is counting the Babylonian exile, which isn't really a book. Those 11 books will give you the history of the Old Testament. And notice the other books are supplemental. So if you want to know, if you want to little, like read a little bit more about the, the reign of David or the life of the kingdom of David, just go down and you'll read First Chronicles and that will help you, give you more information. So those are the historical books, okay? Let's talk about the experiential books. Book of Job, many scholars believe Job was, took place during the time of the book of Genesis. It was a very early book. And... Uh, <clears throat> Basically, the book of Job is a really interesting book because I can only give you a quick overview. Job basically tells or discusses how God's sovereignty and man's frailty meet and how very often without an ultimate answer. (laughs) How those two come together and you don't really get an answer. Why does God, you know, why does, you know, doesn't really give an answer. It, I mean, at the end, what does he, God do? He comes to Job and he says, listen, I'm God and you're not, and you're going to have to be okay with that. That's essentially what he says to Job. We come to the book of uh, the Psalms. The Psalms, think of them as the hymnal of Israel, their songbook. And uh, the Psalms, by the way, weren't just written under that time period. I have it under Solomon and David's time period. You see that's under there, under that period. But they were, there were Psalms written all during those 12 periods. In fact, two of the Psalms were written after the Babylonian exile. So, but I'm just showing you where you know, a lot of the Psalms were written by David. Solomon wrote a lot of the Psalms. I'm just putting a lot you know, there. But don't think that they're limited to that time period. Uh, secondly... Uh, David wrote uh, 73 psalms. Uh, Moses wrote Psalm 90. So, you know, obviously you've got that all over the place. Song of Solomon. Uh, that was written by so- uh, Solomon, obviously, or some Bibles call it the Song of Songs. And it basically is written when, Mo- or when uh, Solomon was, they seen as a young man. Uh, Proverbs. Solomon wrote a lot of the Proverbs. Um, 
By the way, just quickly, Proverbs are not principles. They're, because you've got to be really careful that you don't take them. Like, for instance, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart. Meaning, well, train him to be a Christian, and then they'll grow up and they'll be a Christian. That's not what the Proverbs are meant to do. Don't have time to go into it, but just to say there's wisdom there. And Solomon wrote a number of the Proverbs. Ecclesiastes is kind of an interesting book. Many people believe that was written by Solomon in the twilight years of his life. And really what that book is all about is, is Solomon looking back on his life, I believe, a man who could have any woman he wanted, any kind of fine wine, any, as much riches as he wanted. In other words, he could have anything he wanted to excess. There was nothing he couldn't have. And the phrase that's used in Ecclesiastes is under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. And basically what he's saying is, I had everything under the sun and I still was missing something. I think, I think that's the essence of what uh, the book of, uh, that, uh, of uh, Ecclesiastes is. Now let's move. To, so we have the historical books. We have the experiential books. By the way, where do you think we're going next weekend? Well, we're finished with the historical, so we're going to the experiential. We're going to talk about Psalms next week. But the prophetic books, you have three groups of books here. You have the pre-exilic, you have the exilic, and you have the post-exilic. And all that means is some prophets spoke to people the north or, north or the south before captivity. Some were pre, you know, teaching during captivity, and some were after captivity, okay? The exile. The exile just means captivity. So you have Isaiah. Uh, some people have called Isaiah the gospel of the Old Testament. Uh, it's broken down to chapters 1 through 39, which speak of judgment, and 40 through 66, which speak of the good news, the, the promise, the Messiah. A lot of messianic prophecies there. Jeremiah has been called the weeping prophet. And it makes sense, too, when you see where he is. Here he is, Jeremiah is, right before the nation of Israel is going to be taken into captivity. And Lamentations is written during, during notice it's, it's written during the Babylonian exile. What is he weeping over? That God's people are in captivity, that they're getting ready to be taken into captivity. So obviously he's a downer. So when you read Jeremiah, if you, you need to pick me up, you ain't going to get it from them. You know, it's just not going to happen. And he's got a good reason to do that. So you have Obadiah, Joel, Jonah. You can read those prophets. And basically, those are prophets that, pre, that, that spoke to nations and people before the exile. And then we have the Babylonian exile. Daniel's great book, if you want to read about what, what it was, life was like in, in Babylon. And Daniel kind of gives you an idea. Uh, a lot of prophecy. It speaks about his friends. Uh, Lamentations, I mentioned that. Ezekiel. And then... Haggai, uh, Zechariah, and Malachi, those are the prophets that came and they spoke while they were rebuilding the temple, while they were rebuilding the walls, the prophets were there. So you'll read about that. And that's the period of time. So when you're reading Ezra and Nehemiah, if you read Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi along with that, you'll get some extra information. You know, you'll see how they fit together and who they're speaking to and what they're speaking about and the issues that are going on. All right, we've just gone through the whole Testament. But you see how they, they fit different. They're like puzzle pieces. It's not like bum, 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 bum. It's like, okay, there's these, and then this fits here, and this fits here, and these fit here. If you see the Bible that way, and you read the Bible that way, when you pick up the Bible and you read, like, uh, uh, one of the prophets, like if you read Daniel, say, okay, that's during the Babylonian exile. It lasted 70 years. And now Daniel is describing what life was like living in exile. 
If you read the book of uh, uh, Zechariah, you realize, okay, this is after the people have come back into the land. They're either rebuilding the temple or rebuilding the wall and the struggles that they have and the conflict they have with the Samaritans. And, and I'm going to be reading about what the prophet is doing, either to correct the people, encourage the people, or maybe kick them a little bit in the butt and say, hey, you know, you're not doing the right thing here. Uh, that's essentially how you can use this chart. So, i got to quit. But here's, here's the last thing I want to do. The, the fundamental question, though, about the Bible is really this. Is the Bible about me? And is it what should I do? Or is it about Jesus and what he's done? And I'm going to say it's the second one. And, and I've adapted this from Tim Keller. But let me just show you what I mean by that. Jesus is a better Adam who passed the test in the dark garden. Remember, Adam failed in his test in the garden. Don't eat from that one tree. But when Jesus was in the garden, when he, when he peered into the judgment that he was about to take, when he sweat drops of blood, he went on. He chose to be obedient to the point of death. Jesus is the true and better Abraham. Abraham was said, you leave your, your, your family, leave your comfort zone, and co- go to a place that I'll show you. Jesus left his throne and came to earth for us. To face hell. Jesus is a true and better Isaac, who was not just offered by his father. Remember, uh, he was told, uh, he was told, offer your son on this altar. Uh, and he wasn't, he's not just a true and better Isaac who, who offered his son on a mountain, but was truly sacrificed for us. God said to, to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. You didn't hold, withhold him from me. Now we are at the foot of, the, of Christ. We could say God to God, now, now we know that you love me because you did not withhold your son from me, but gave him to me. Jesus is a true and better Moses who stands in a gap between the people of the Lord uh, and, and, and God to mediate a new covenant. And Moses went up on the mountain and came down and said, God said this. Well, now we have Jesus who mediates, not, just, not Moses. We have Jesus who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is a true and better Esther who didn't just risk her life uh, losing an earthly palace, but gave up his heavenly throne. Who didn't just uh, risk his life, but gave his life. Who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish. But when I perish, I perish for them to save my people. Uh, the, the whole Bible, the Old Testament, is all about Jesus. And when we think of da- David going into the battlefield to fight Goliath, we want to think, well, I'm David. I'm fighting the giants of my life. And I just want to tell you, no, you're not. You're the, the army of Israel that was sitting there helpless and hopeless. And our warrior was Jesus Christ who went out on the battlefield and fell the giant of sin and death for us. And that's the story of David. Jesus is on the battlefield. And it was not us that fell the giant. It was Jesus that fell the giant. So this book is all about Jesus. So I hope you have a better understanding of it. And I hope it will be more encouraging to you and you'll be able to understand how it fits together. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, meditate on what we've heard and what we've gone through, a lot of material, we thank you that there is one theme, that you want to be with us, and that you'll go to great lengths to do that, to the length of giving your own son for us. 
Father, thank you for giving Jesus and that he willingly uh, did not fail in the garden, but was successful. Thank you for giving your son. And though you said to, to Abraham, stop, Abraham, don't kill your son. When the death blow came to Jesus, you were silent. You did it for us, Father. We don't deserve it, but we certainly thank you. May we meditate more and more on the incredible good news of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.